This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, The Big Change Program, and WellStartHealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an evidence-based and educated life. So today's guest is Dr. Martika Heener, who is a prolific author, a fitness expert, and plant-based nutrition nerd. It turns out that she and I have a lot in common. We both have written for the Four Dummies series, and we both enjoy talking about really obscure studies and the preponderance of evidence. Before we get into it, a couple of quick announcements. First of all, the coach training course is filled and it has begun. I'm really excited to be working with quite a large group of people uh, who want to take their wellness coaching skills to the next level in a plant-based format and environment. I've heard from a lot of folks who are still interested, and we can't take anybody else right now. And I don't know if we're going to be offering it again. I hope we will, because it's turning out to to be kind of a lot of fun. So perhaps in the fall, maybe September or early October. So if you're interested, just drop me an email, howard at wellstarthealth.com, and let me know you'd like to be put on the notification list for if and when we offer the coach training program again. Second thing is we are offering another run of what used to be called the Big Change Program um, with through Well Start Health, and that will probably begin in July. So if you or someone you know would like to reverse or halt or slow down the, the uh, progression of chronic disease, would like to get to closer to an ideal body weight, get more fit, uh, all that good stuff that we do in the Big Change Program, check out Well Start Health. or just drop me a line and we can talk about whether it's right for you. Again, that's Howard at WellStartHealth.com. And finally, the regular plea for partnership. If you are loving this podcast and you'd like to help out, the two biggest ways are to write that iTunes review. I've got a couple new ones to share with you this week at the end after the interview. And of course, also to become a sponsor, a patron of the show, over at patreon.com slash plant yourself, one word, or plantyourself.com slash Patreon, one word. Okay, enough about that. Let's get to the interview. Without further ado, Martika Heener, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to participate. Yeah, so we, we got talking and we discovered we have a bunch of things in common, including that we've both uh, written for the Four Dummies people. So it's, a, it's a small club. It is, uh, the, the Four Dummies books. We can, you know, talk about, um, you know, parts of tens and, and <laughs> lists and all that stuff. You've been a writer and you've done a lot of writing and, and teaching and training. Why don't you just uh, give folks a brief introduction to yourself? Okay, so I think it all began when um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I thought I would be a novelist, which I never actually did become. But um, I also had a love of exercise and nutrition, and I became um, a vegetarian when I was 15. It started a little bit before that building up um, because, um, you know, I started learning about the animals, and I had a science teacher in eighth grade who was a nun who gave a little science section, I mean, a nutrition section in our science class, and so I started trying to eat healthier, and then when I was 15, I actually took the plunge and went vegetarian. Wait a minute. You're at the age of like 13 or 12 or 13. 
you want to eat healthier? What kid does that? <laughs> well, actually, it started at 11. I read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair in sixth grade. And I just read it on my own. I don't know how I came across it. It wasn't a school reading. But I was so... Have you read that book? No, but I'm, I'm a little familiar with the type of muckraking journalism. <laughs> yeah, it's a very easy read. You can read it in about an hour or two. But um, And it's actually online, too, I think. But it's a really powerful book in terms of, you know, it, it basically exposed in the early 1900s the Chicago meatpacking industry. And the, the purpose by the author was to expose the plight of the immigrants. But in doing so, um, he uh, also talked about how the cows were treated in the you know slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants and all that. And it was really horrific. And and I was 11 years old when I read it, and I had no idea that's where meat came from. And so I first started being, you know, horrified by it all at that age. But I had a mother who was, you know, conventionally educated and thought that, you know, meat was good for you. And so I wasn't, you know, I, I could only not eat so much because it was a big fight. But then when I was 15, um, I read a book. I forgot what it was called, but it was by Nora Hayden. And... Um, and it was, it said, give up salt, sugar, um, meat, uh, you know, pretty much everything. And so I went on this health kick at 15. Um, and yeah, like I said, when eighth grade, I had this science teacher who started talking about whole wheat bread and, you know, don't eat sugar and stuff. But, uh, but that book at 15 really kicked it off. And so, however, at the same time, I was smoking cigarettes and other substances and getting drunk in high school. But I was on this big health kick, what, what I was eating, and I thought, you know, I was being healthy. And uh, so anyway, that lasted, I, you know, then, uh, well, I was a vegetarian for 32 years, actually, um, before I went vegan. But uh, I started teaching aerobics my senior year in high school. And I was a member of a fitness club, and I was very enthusiastic and loved it. And someone, the owner of the studio came up to me and said, do you want to be an aerobics instructor? And I'm like, yeah. So that's what started that. T today, you would never get a 17-year-old to be your group fitness instructor. But <laughs> this was the uh, 80s. So, you know, there were lower standards. And, uh -huh. well, and I can, can I picture your hair? <laughs> it was big. I was in Texas. <laughs> I was in Texas and it was big. Big hair yeah. and, the and the body suits and... That's right. This is before the thong leotards, but it was leg warmers and uh, yeah. And then the thong leotards came. Yeah. So it was fun. I loved, I still love aerobics. I, I still, I still teach to this day and I teach anywhere from, uh, you know, eight to 15 classes a week, depending on. So was it with music? Yeah, it was the early, it was, you know, Jane Fonda aerobics. The very Okay. So did you, did you make like mixtapes? Oh, well, the tapes didn't exist. This was albums. We had albums. This was like 1983. So wait, I had tapes, like cassette tapes. You did? Yeah. Well, maybe they existed, but in our aerobic studios, there was a record player and there were albums. See, CDs came out in the in like the, the mid 80s. Oh, did they? Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. So I, I remember. You know, we would always like in middle school. We really? Would these, Are like, you sure? They came like out little cassette, yeah, like audio cassette tapes, like the little Panasonic, and oh, you yeah. could buy a, a microphone. Yeah, well, then we had audio cassettes. Yeah, maybe a couple of years later. I mean, when I first started, it was albums. Like, maybe it was only a year of that. And then it started, then it was tapes. Yeah, and then we had mixtapes, and there was a big underground business for DJs to, like, charge $50 for a mixed aerobics tape, um, 
where it had the right beats per minute that you needed for different kinds of aerobics workouts. And, um, yeah, it was cool. It was a, it was a fun time. <laughs> so, uh, so I went to, I went to college. I went to Smith college in Massachusetts and I ended up majoring in English lit and exercise science. And I was still teaching aerobics that whole time. I taught aerobics in a, in a prison in the area. And, um, and then I to, went to, to women. Uh, yes, only to women. I wasn't allowed to be around the men, um, women inmates, and they were all innocent apparently. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah. And then I went to London just for six months on a student work permit when I was right after I graduated when I was 22. But then I ended up getting an opportunity to stay and um, longer. And I ended up basically helping to develop their fitness industry in England and got very involved with training other instructors and going to Europe and training instructors there. And, you know, they were about five years behind us because this is pre-internet. So all of the information wasn't spread quite as easily everywhere. And every, and this all emanated from America. So, um, so I ended up doing a bunch of fitness videos and I had a fitness TV show, um, called body heat, <laughs> which was a, uh, there was sort of this tabloid newspaper called the daily mirror had started up a satellite cable channel and um, it was when that was first happening too. all those other channels. And, um, and then I was basically the daytime programming. They had sort of, it was a little bit risque at night. They had something called topless darts and they had like a, a woman who was the Norwegian weather girl and she would dress either in a bikini or a evening gown and tell the weather. So I was the daytime programming <laughs> meant to, uh, um, but yeah, it was funny and it was fun. And, uh, and I did some fitness videos and wrote books. And that's when I first, and I also wrote for magazines and newspapers there in England. So I, I ended up being there about 12 years. And then Fitness Magazine hired me from New York City to be their fitness director. And they moved me from London to New York. And I'm trying to make this really short, but it's kind of a complicated. But then I, I did that for a few years and loved it. It was awesome. And then um, I decided to go back to grad school and I went to Columbia and initially just to get a master's in exercise physiology. And then I realized after I did that, I, that I didn't know anything. And I, was, you didn't know anything. Well, you know, I mean the, your first, I mean, you had just, you had just been, t been like shipped over to another continent <laughs> to be an expert. Did, did you feel at that point that you didn't know anything or was it like, what? I think I always felt like I didn't know anything. I still feel like I don't know anything. Well, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And um, so, you know, and especially in this industry, in, in fitness and nutrition, it's like there's always new research. We're always debunking what we thought we knew. And there's more research that elucidates things a little better. And so it's, you know, you have to, it's, it's hard work to keep up and feel like you're knowledgeable, I think. Um, but I ended up, so I ended up doing a master's in nutrition. And I think also with a master's degree, sometimes we think, you know, well, you know, it's, you're learning a, a few more facts with your master's degree, but you're not necessarily learn, learning about how to interpret research and certainly not a lot of st statistics and that kind of thing. So anyway, if, eventually I, um, I, well, I then went on, you know, d decided I needed to get the PhD and that was in nutrition and, and physical activity, fitness, exercise. And, um, so during that whole time, I was still writing for all sorts of publications, including the New York Times, and um, doing some books. I did a couple books, including the Cross Training for Dummies, 
And I was still teaching fitness classes and personal training, you know, basically putting myself through Columbia. Um, and then I end up getting my PhD. And after that, I started going more, a little bit more into academia, still doing the other stuff. And, but then I started doing some research, obesity and exercise research. And, um, and then I also uh, was a managing editor of an obesity research journal and became a professor at Hunter College, which I still am today at teaching a nutrition class. And along the way, during that path, I became vegan about five years ago. And, uh, and that first started because I discovered, I already thought I was doing the right thing for the animals. You know, like many vegetarians, old vegetarians, um, you know, we didn't know what happened to the dairy cows. And um, so I just thought I was, I thought I was healthy because oddly enough, in all of those years of education at Columbia in the, my nutrition program, I never learned about a plant-based diet. And I was a vegetarian. I didn't really know, learn, but I learned that olive oil was healthy and lean meats were healthy. And, you know, um, it's kind of amazing. I look back on it. And now that I teach and I use a conventional nutrition textbook, I see like there's references to dairy in every chapter, even when they're not relevant. There's some sort of <laughs> mission to promote dairy in that textbook. And um, but when I first went vegan was because I discovered that dairy was causing my asthma and I was on a daily inhaler. And I don't know why I didn't know it, know it for 10 years prior to that. But suddenly one day I took a glass. I was drinking an iced coffee and I took a sip of it. It had milk in it. And I had an anaphylactic reaction and my throat started swelling up and closing. And I thought I was going to die. Like I couldn't breathe. And then I was like, what was that? And then I went, I went home and Googled dairy and asthma, milk and asthma. And sure enough, there's a lot of research on it. And so I gave up dairy for a year and I never used my inhaler once. Prior to that, my doctor had been telling, telling me it was my cat and I had had one cat die. So I had half the cat I used to have. And I'm like, it's not my cat. I've never been allergic to my cats. And of course, you know, most people would believe that and they'd go dump their cat at a kill shelter because they think the doctor tells them they're allergic. And in fact, it's probably the dairy, you know? So, so during all this time, you've got, you're, you're getting your PhD, you've been an academic, you've been researching and you discover more useful truths as a Google searcher, like <laughs> exactly. the, the, the same way as, as the, as the rest of us. What I mean, you know, I'm going back to like the Nora Hayden book. Um, like, I'm I'm sure whatever she said in that book was 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 more extreme than you were learning from you know the the powers that be on nutrition and dietetics. What, what did you What did you Where were you thinking you could start to find truth? Well. I don't know. I mean, you know, because I, I didn't know I didn't have truth, number one. And the Nora Hayden book, um, at the time, I'm trying to remember if she told me to give up dairy in that book. I don't think she did because I became a vegetarian. Um, but it was sugar, salt, um, meat. And that book, and that book was like 1980. So by the time I was in graduate school, this was now like 2002, three, four, around there. So it was 20 years later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm still astounded by it because I was a vegetarian while I was in graduate school. And so I was more receptive to information on plant-based information, but I, I was somehow never exposed to it. 
properly. I mean, I was exposed to it in in terms of the the USDA dietary gu- guidelines promotes you know more plant foods, but nothing about the curative properties. You know, and even even in the um, there's like a medical nutrition therapy course that all RDs take along the way. You know, as part of it's a required course, and even in that, you know, you're learning for specific diseases what you're supposed to eat. But again, it's very outdated. I mean, if you look at any diabetic diet in any institution, those are the guidelines they're following, and it's a joke, right? It's not. It might be managing the blood sugars. It's certainly not curing anything or reversing mm-hmm. anything. So when when you started when you started Googling and you discovered the Dairy Link, who did you then turn to? Um, you know, if, if if your if the textbooks were no longer trustworthy to you, were there particular authors, researchers, organizations that, that now replaced the, the mainstream as, as your, uh, you know, as your go-to sources? Well, I would say that I didn't actually seek out, I didn't seek out information on the whole food plant-based diet. In fact, um, I didn't even really know about it. I, I, like as a term and as no oil and I, I, I just simply learned about the vegan, right? And vegan meaning um, just normal vegan. And I think now we have more distinctions with vegan because we have more vegan food. So we do have junk food vegan. I don't think back then, 10 years ago, there was as much junk food vegan because you had to eat more whole food because that's all there was really, even uh-huh. as, a, as a vegetarian. You might be eating dairy with it, but you know, you're more likely to eat brown, brown rice and beans, 10 years ago than now because you don't have all these meat substitutes and all these processed things and, and vegan donuts. And, you know, so, um, I think that back then, um, I really, I, I was just eating vegan and, and it was a little bit more. And that's when I started finding out about the animals and what I didn't know about dairy cows in that every dairy cow, their babies become veal. So if you're a vegetarian, you're basically creating the veal industry. And I didn't know the torture, the immense torture of a dairy cow. You know, I never thought about it. I used to donate to PETA and I would, they would send me their magazines and I would throw them away because I knew they were depressing and I didn't want to read them. And I thought they're preaching to the converted. Why are they even sending this to me? And that's what I thought. (laughs) And I really did. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think a lot of people don't know what they don't know. And so they think they know it all. And it's easy to think that. And so so initially in my days as a vegan, um, it was actually a boyfriend whose mother had gotten cancer and she had gone whole food plant based. And she's the one that had, you know, learned about the China study and all of that. I really hadn't even really heard of it. And to be honest, as a vegetarian for 30 years, 32 years, I didn't even really know what the term vegan was um, for most of that time. And. I don't know how I was oblivious. And I think mostly was I wasn't seeking out vegetarian things. I would mingle, I would go to normal restaurants and eat. I wasn't trying to convert anyone. I was, you know, it was just, I was thinking I was doing the right thing for the animals. I was thinking it was healthier. Now, I, I mean, now I think dairy is probably the worst thing you can consume. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. um, but so this boyfriend, his, uh, his mother had gotten cancer and, she had, so she was whole food plant-based and he's the one that introduced me to Dr. Gregor because I had never heard of Dr. Gregor either. So, um, yeah, it's, I would say that, you know, it's been a learning curve for sure. Um, once I thought I knew all of this information with a PhD, in fact, I didn't know much at all <laughs> as it turns oh, but, out. 
Right. But you did, you did learn how to read and evaluate studies and research. Yes. That's definitely a part of it, as you know. <laughs> so, um, I've, I'm always wondering, cause I, I used to spend a lot of time like looking at the science, especially when I was working on books with researchers and scientists. And at some point I just got tired of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got bored with the fight. <laughs> like, I feel like, like I wasn't, I wasn't that good at doing those explainer videos, you know, the way Dr. Greger is, the way he can just, you know, mm-hmm. grind out one or two of them a day. And, yeah. um, and I, what I really preferred to do was helping people, you know, change their behaviors. And I felt like we knew enough, like I didn't, I didn't need more evidence to, to feel good about helping people change behaviors. But, and at the same time, I'm still sort of on the periphery of, of these like scientific debates. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just interviewed uh, Walter Longo, uh, who wrote The Longevity Diet. And I'm, I've talked to a lot of other people. And it seems like, you know, even, even people in the nutrition community who are well-meaning, who don't have an ax to grind, who aren't industry shills, there's still a lot of debate about what constitutes the healthiest diet. And I'm wondering from your perspective as a researcher and someone who's come to this, um, you know, through the school of hard knocks, do you, how much, um, how much controversy do you see? Is it completely black and white what human beings should be eating or, or are we still more or less in the dark? That's a really good observation and question. And that's because the problem is there is research out there that shows that, say, olive oil is better for you or or is good for you, rather, um, that lean meats are good for you, that dairy is good for you. Um, but then that's where we get into being able to, you know, have a wide um, knowledge base and understanding of all of the research and context. And very few people have that because you have to be kind of reading it all the time and going to conferences all the time and keeping up with everything. Um, but the thing is, you know, so I taught another class I taught for several years was research methods, how to interpret health studies and um and, you know, how to read the tables, how to, you know, evaluate every part of a research paper. And that's a really important thing to do because at, once you start doing that, teasing it apart, okay, so all the research that says olive oil is good for you, well, yes, someone can take the average registered dietitian can take that study or studies or, or um, review paper that says, yes, olive oil is good for you. Well, but then you look at these studies. What did they compare it to? Oh, they compared it to butter or to saturated fats from meats. Well, yes, it's better for you than butter, but is it better for you than than nothing? And the answer is it appears not. So because we have some other studies that show, you know, and again, you have to look at the type of study, whether it's observational or experimental and the quality of the design and all that stuff. And, and, and that's where you can pick apart how that study was conducted. And that's why you have, say, industry shills who can um, basically, you know, stick up for studies that um, or, or criticize studies, you know, such as the China study or whatever, um, because you can pick apart any study because no study can do everything and no study can do any everything perfectly and no study is every ever big enough unless it's 
an observational study, but then it's not an experimental study. So then you can criticize it for that. So there's a lot, I mean, you know, you could definitely spend a lot of time debating it. And I kind of agree with you in some ways that, you know, like the anecdotal evidence. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the anecdotal evidence is what people tend to believe more than research in general with anything, I think. And it's also more motivational and, and, and inspirational. Now, saying that, anyone with any sort of a research or medical or health background will criticize anecdotal evidence, um, and, and rightly so. But at the same time, you know, as we both know, like my asthma, I mean, that's how I discovered it. I didn't discover it re reading research that dairy was causing it. And even now, you know, you can find some studies that show dairy doesn't cause asthma. <laughs> or or it might not exacerbate it. I don't know. It, it's very complicated, but I think that part, you know, sometimes we're too smart for our own good and we overanalyze and that's what happens with research. It's so reductionist, you know, as you know, writing whole with Dr. Colin Campbell, um, you know, you can get lost in the weeds and not see the big picture. And um, so I, I, I forgot your original question, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, it was it was it was about the you know where you think the state of knowledge is, and the fact that you know that I can have this conversation with Walter Longo, whom you know I would never presume to like argue with, mm -hmm. <laughs> just because mm -hmm. you know he's done thirty years of, of really fine research, and he's quite clear that uh, you know thirty five percent fat in your diet is a fine thing as long as it's a healthy fat such as olive oil or or salmon. And, you know, I'm wondering, so, you know, I look at him and I say, well, he grew up in Italy, like maybe he has a cultural bias, maybe he's not reading the same studies that I'm, stu I'm reading. Um, so I'm just, I'm just fascinated because he's not the same sort of person as, you know, the, 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 the person who works for the Dairy Council or the Cattlemen's or, Board. Or Gary Tobbs. Or, or Gary Tobbs. Or Robert you know, or, Atkins, yeah. Right, like in talking to Walter Longo, I get the impression of here is a guy who honestly wants to give us the very, very best information and mm -hmm. has, you know, and is a true scientist. And so when he comes up with stuff that, that contradicts kind of my worldview, I want to be humble enough to be curious about whether there are things I'm missing. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, without looking at all of his studies or research, I mean, I just know that, you know, with any study, I mean, this is the other thing. When you publish a study, there's all sorts of results that aren't in there. So if you're reading the research, um, you know, there's often there's important results that aren't highlighted in the study or they might be they might be in there, but they're they're in the text and there's not a table or a graph showing them and they're not in the conclusions. But in fact, they're they're important and, and, you know, so I think that whatever research he's looking at, I mean, yes, we do have research that shows olive oil is good for you. And the, you know, but again, it's like, what are you comparing it to? And, um, are you comparing it to the standard American diet? Yes. The Mediterranean diet with olive oil and fish in it is absolutely better. The studies show that, but as Dr. Robert Osfeld points out in his lectures often, um, you know, the, it's the vegetables and the whole plant foods and the whole grains that make the Mediterranean diet healthier. So it's despite the olive oil and the right, uh, right. And I, you know, and I hear that, and I know it, and I'm still wondering, like, where, where, what's the state of evidence? So, for for example, I, I I've been collecting some dietary contradictions, like things that I'm honestly confused about. 
So one, one of them is fish, for example, where the, the, and there's, there's the best evidence, I think, around fish eating is from the Seventh-day Adventist study, where they found that the fish eaters had higher body mass indexes than the vegans, but a longer lifespan. Um, and, and yeah, and that could be from the DHA EPA, um, perhaps. We don't actually know. That's just speculation, right? Right. Um, and well, you know, um, you know, and then back to what you mentioned before was the levels of fat. I mean, the thing with the fat is you can eat a whole food plant-based diet with absolutely no added oils and nothing processed and get a high percentage of fat. If you're eating, you know, avocados and nuts to any degree, you don't even have to eat that much and you're way above 10% fat. Um, I've actually discussed this with Dr. Baxter Montgomery who is, I don't know if you've ever talked to him. He's a cardiologist. I, I, I met, yeah, I met him at, the, uh, at the, the checkout of a hotel in Marshall, Texas, but I haven't managed to get him on the podcast yet. <laughs> yeah, well, he is, actually, he's, uh, are you going to the uh, the Peapod conference in Raleigh in May? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's in uh, my neighborhood. Are you coming? Okay, yes, I'm speaking at it. Oh, and, cool. Yeah, and, and Dr. Montgomery is speaking at it too, but uh, he, you know, he puts all of his patients on a raw vegan diet. I mean, he's a big proponent of raw. And I actually took my father to him and he got, he, he did this remarkable transformation on my father. And my father is the least likely person. He did not believe anything would work. He um, has eaten meat all his life. He tells me I'm in a cult because I'm a vegan. Um, <laughs> you know, he's taught, it was, there was no placebo effect with the effect on my dad. Um, and he, my dad was eating 10 to 15 pieces of bacon every morning for breakfast. And in the year that that, that, that happened, his increase went from two pieces a day to up to 10 to 15. Um, his insulin resistance went crazy, bad, worsened. And um, they had tripled his dose of insulin. He was on 106 units a day, but his blood sugar was still out of control. It was still in the 300s and 400s every day. Um and that's the only reason he even agreed to try the diet because um, he, you know, was totally skeptical. But so what he did was he was eating probably two or three avocados a day. He was eating like 30 pieces of fruit a day. And then Dr. Montgomery has a cafe at his offices where he, you know, makes prepared raw foods. So different kind of wraps and some raw soups and various things like that. But um, my dad remarkably transformed. But the, that diet was probably 30 or 40 percent fat. And, um, and Dr. Montgomery says it's because it's the cooked fats you want to be careful of, and it's okay to have more raw fat. And, you know, again, I don't know if we have any research to show that. Like a lot of the stuff, we just, even in conventional nutrition, there's so much we still don't know. There's so many studies that haven't been done. So that's part of the reason we don't have these answers. I don't even know. I mean, we might now, I'm trying to think like maybe in the last year or something, but we, if we have any at all, we, we don't have enough. We don't have a preponderance of evidence where we have experimental trials, where we have people eating a whole food plant-based versus a healthy vegan, which might include some oil versus a junk food vegan versus a paleo versus a Atkins eater versus a keto eater versus a standard American diet. You know, we don't have those studies versus a pescatarian. And until we have like all these studies, which are comparing all these very specific permutations in, you know, different dietary patterns, we really don't know the answer. 
um, with fish is an interesting one because, okay, we know that the contaminants and toxins in fish are a huge concern. And of course, the environmental aspects. Um, but, you know, the contaminants certainly can affect your health and they're both in the farm raised and in the wild um, fish. And um, Dr. Montgomery, however, so he, he, he was, I was talking to him one time about different health conditions he's treated and cured. And he just threw out that he had, he had cured two people of pulmonary fibrosis. And I don't know if you know that disease. The only reason I know it, it's sort of an obscure disease. It's actually more common than people think, but it's not a well-known disease. And part of that is because there's no FDA approved treatment for it at all. There's no drug for it. The only thing that's out there is a lung transplant. That's your only chance of survival. It's basically an autoimmune condition where the lungs start, tissue starts scarring and eventually you suffocate to death. And the only reason I know about it is one of my best friends, she, her dad died of it and her four aunts and uncles died of it all within a 10 year period. And she started a foundation to help, you know, try to get research on it and everything. And so Dr. Montgomery, we were just talking and passing, he's, we're talking about different things. And he just mentions he cured two people of pulmonary fibrosis. And I'm like, what? And like, that's not curable. Like that people, you, there's no cure for that. And he said, well, I got two people off oxygen. Because that's what, you know, once you start progressing, you go on oxygen because your lungs stop, you know, lose their ability to breathe. And um, so he said, but then he said, actually, one lady started eating fish again, and then she went back on oxygen and died. And so his kind of, you know, so that's, again, anecdotal doesn't prove anything, but his sort of, um, his uh, perspective on that is that when you're really at these fine-tuned levels, you know, where you're kind of trying to achieve perfection with your diet, these little bits will matter. And so, um, you know, so it might be that, you know, fish is certainly healthier than everything else, but, you know, maybe at certain levels where you're trying to cure a disease, you know, maybe it's not. And again, this is just speculation. We have, I don't think we have any research on this, but. Gotcha. So, so I wanted to talk to you specifically about protein, because you said a couple of things that were very interesting to me. And, and, you know, coming from working with Garth Davis and writing Proteinaholic, which I know is a book that you appreciate, um, you also said that you think it's possible for plant eaters to not get enough protein. And we, we need to pay more attention to this. Yes. Well, I think that, um, first of all, I, I love Garth Davis and I have, I've had my students for the last two years, every semester, read Proteinaholic um, along with their conventional nutrition textbook um, because they're certainly not getting that information in the textbook. Um, so I'm a huge, um, I, I think the book is great. I buy it as gifts for people. I mean, it's, I think it's, you know, the China study is great, but I think it's not easy for most people to read. And um, so Proteinaholic is great. It's a great gift to try to get someone thinking off the beaten path. Um, but saying that, I have, you know, one of the things I do in my classes, either when I'm consulting with people or I have in my student with my students, we all part of what they do for each semester is they do a diet analysis project. So they track their what they eat for a week and then they do enter it into the dietary software. And I like to use Chronometer which is an excellent, excellent app. Um, and part of the reason I like it so much is it doesn't just give you the calories in and out, 
or and your macronutrients, your protein and your fat. It gives you all of your micronutrients and all of your essential amino acids. It breaks down your fatty acids and it does it every time you enter a food in. So some of the dietary programs, you get that like you might get some of that information at the very end once you've kind of processed the end of the day or whatever. But this like gives you real time. So if you enter an apple in, it will update all of your nutrient status. So you can see at any time during the day, you know, where you fall, what, what you might need to eat more of because you're low in something. Um, but anyway, so saying that, my students and people I consult with, I have them use that app. Um, and then you can see, you know, now saying that there's, there's all sorts of um, problems with self, you know, report and monitoring your food intake because it's not very accurate, you know, for many reasons. But it's the best thing. It's the best tool we have, and it can give you some rough idea. But it is definitely possible to either meet your protein needs but not be meeting all your essential amino acid needs um, and to um, not meet your protein or essential amino acid needs and also, most commonly for most people who, and especially most people who are not vegan, but even vegans, um, it's possible to meet your protein and essential amino acid needs, but be completely low in most of your vitamins and minerals. And this is where, of course, food quality and food choices matter. Um, and that's, I think, a growing problem because now that we have more junk food as vegans, which is very exciting to get a, a vegan donut or vegan ice cream and like a million flavors and brands of vegan ice cream. <laughs> um, of course, all of these things fill you up, but they're not necessarily giving you the nutrients you need. Right. So, um, you know, I, I love vegans and I have, uh, you know, no, no animosity toward junk food vegans, but I would never tell someone to eat that way or suggest that it was a healthy way of eating but i do tell people to eat whole food plant-based and that and that when if they're eating whole food plant-based and they're limiting the high fat foods like avocados and nuts that they pretty much don't have to worry about anything do you think i'm wrong um i think in some cases you can be wrong and and again so like this is an example i love to give to people which is kind of amazing to me. And I didn't even realize this until I did the analysis. So if you ate like, and it depends on your size. So how many, you know, you might need, depending on your quotas of all your nutrients that you need, how much protein you need or, or any of the other nutrients. But if you ate say 1100 calories or so of broccoli or asparagus, and it might be more for a bigger person, uh, less for a smaller person. Um, you would actually, from broccoli and asparagus, or asparagus, you would actually meet every macronutrient and micronutrient need. So you would get all the protein you needed. You'd meet your RDA for the protein and all your essential amino acid quotas. You'd meet every micronutrient except for B12. And B12, of course, um, you know, we need to supplement and it's not in our soils. We have power washing, you know, devices on all levels of our food system that wash off the dirt and our dirt may be compromised and even our animals are supplemented with b12 so even if you're getting your b12 from an animal you're getting it indirectly through supplements still um really so like cow cows and chickens are fed b12 so that they can give us b12 yes because you know they're fed a lot of things in in the farming situations yeah 
Um, so, um, it, but if you ate all of, you know, just broccoli or just um, asparagus, you know, or at least a thousand calories of it, you would meet all of your micronutrient needs, including your omega-3 fatty acids. Now this is, let me qualify this. This is just based on um, doing a nutritional analysis. So I've not done research to prove this in any way, but just showing what the, you know, nutritional software spits out. Um, but saying that if you put chicken in, if you put a thousand calories worth of chicken in, you know, you will not meet all your micronutrient needs at all. You, you will meet your protein needs, but you're not going to, you know, meet, um, you know, all, all the, all the nutrients. So I think that speaks to the whole food plant-based, like we're, if you're, if you're eating a lot of this, these particularly highly nutritious, um, plant foods, you're going to be replete. You're going to get the nutrients you need. Absolutely. And so that also suggests that if you're getting an array of different plant foods and you're getting enough calories, um, you will also get what you need. Um, but saying that some, um, a, a fruitarian or a raw vegan might have a little bit tougher time meeting protein or essential amino acid needs. Um, and that depends on again, what they're eating. So um, you know, nuts and seeds, if they're not eating a lot of that, they might not, you know, be enough. But the, the best way to check if, if you're, if you are getting what you need is to use chronometer or another app that can tell you these things and you can kind of get an idea. Um, and then of course, what's most common is the junk food vegan or not even necessarily the junk food vegan, but, um, someone who thinks they're a healthy vegan, but they're still, eating things that, um, crowd out the more nutritious foods so they can eat, so you can still be low on nutrients. And I actually, and then there's a perception. So, you know, we all know just in all nutrition research or health research that people have a rosier view of their, what they eat, of how much they exercise, of their weight. Everyone ha thinks they're better than they are when you sit and test it and, and monitor it. And that holds true for vegans. And one time I was um, uh, consulting with a girl and she said she was a whole, she ate whole food. She was a whole food plant-based eater. And she, and she had started eating eggs again because she said her hair was falling out and um, she felt tired all the time. And so I said, well, if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, you can't, your, your hair shouldn't be falling out. Like you're, something's wrong. You don't, you shouldn't need to eat eggs. And so she let me look at all of her past records. She had been keeping logs for like a year or something and, or maybe two years even. So I was able to look at a bunch of her records, diet records. And I, and I just then took like a two week period where she had, you know, or not, or two weeks of random days. And what I found was she was getting more than enough calories in her mind. She was eating a whole food plant-based diet. She, she really did believe that she truly believed that. Um, but what she was actually eating was like four or five kind bars every day. <laughs> um, which, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of like a, a glorified candy bar, right? I mean, they're a little healthier than a can candy bar, but, um, but you know, they shouldn't be your main, foods, substances, and then she'd eat some sort of, you know, potato chip or cookie or something. There would always be some kind of processed junk food in there. 
And then she'd eat, oh, a bunch of strawberries and, you know, spinach salad. So she would eat some whole foods, but she was, and she was getting, actually getting a ton of calories in. She was, she was exercising a lot too, but she was actually deficient in protein, essential amino acids, and a lot of micronutrients. So it's no wonder that she was having some ill effects on her body, but she was eating a ton of calories. I mean, I think it was the processed thing she was eating. It's so easy to eat more. And and I think a lot of people do that too. And this is meat eaters as well is people get satiated and then you on something and then you actually don't want to eat anymore. And so you don't eat the things that will give you the micronutrients you need. And, and if anything, you know, we have a micronutrient deficiency um, that's an epidemic, not a protein deficiency that's epidemic, even though everyone's worried about protein. You know, that someone like Michael Arnstein, who's a, a raw fruitarian, apparently, and an endurance athlete and a very successful one, um, you know, we used him as sort of an edge case in Proteinaholic to say that it, it appears, even though if you, if you put his diet into the chronometer, that you would not get uh, enough protein or that, that somehow he seems to be. So... How would some like how would somebody know that they are protein deficient? Um, you know, one one of the claims of our movement is you you can't be protein deficient if you're getting sufficient calories. So if you're saying that it, it actually is possible, what would that look like? How would somebody know? Well, I think that um, first of all, you know, having the higher protein foods, especially the more raw and um, raw food and fruit that you eat is important. So having nuts and seeds, beans and grains. Now, if you're raw, you're not eating that. Um, you know, I think with the, you know, if you're getting the quantity, you can, right? But it's, there. people aren't always getting the quantity um, that they need. So um, I think, you know, the first thing to do is just plug plug it into the software and see what, what it looks like, um, what your own personal you know, diet is looking like and do it for, you know, seven days and not just one or two days because they can vary. Um, and then, you know, as far as signs, you know, sometimes it's hair falling out. That's certainly a sign of protein deficiency. Um, bad skin. I don't know. I don't know that there's a blood test that tests for that. Um, but I, yeah, I don't, you know, it's, it's really more of a factor of, not getting enough and and sometimes also with with it might be more common in females because they one might tend to undereat, um especially a younger one and um or not necessarily always younger but i see it in my college students um and then uh if so in a smaller person so someone who's only getting a thousand calories um, you know, and then maybe they're not very active. So they're, you know, if they're only getting a thousand, needing a thousand to 1500 calories a day, um, you know, it's it, when you eat large quantities. So a male who's maybe burning three or 4,000 or 5,000, you know, some of these um, male vegan athletes and they are, you know, and I've spoken to several and they're eating all the time and they're eating, you know, 20 bananas for breakfast Um <laughs> It, you know, it's it, if you're on the lower end of the calorie um, equation, that's where you really have to make those choices. So if you're just you're eating raw for a thousand calories and all you're eating is fruit, you might very well be low in your protein. Um, you know, so you might want to eat more nuts and, and seeds in that case. 
Um, or if you're just a girl and you're a regular vegan, whole food, plant-based vegan, and um, you, again, you're eating 1,200, 1,300 calories a day, if you're not getting beans in there um, or grains, you know, again, it depends on your choices. But if you're eating like lots of asparagus and broccoli, you're, you're likely to meet it. But if, you know, there's, it just depends on the food. But, um, you know, it's possible. It's, I, I've seen it in, in dietary analysis. So, um, but, but more often it's, it's that people are like, you know, you might have one kind bar. So right there, you know, or some kind of bar or some treat and something that fills you up so that also you're not tending to eat more. So you might have, you know, two or 300 calories of something that's sort of processed and not very nutritious. And I don't even mean a kind bar it can be any of these bars. Um, and, but then, you know, that could have been, you know, if you, if you think 300 calories of vegetables, you could get a ton of nutrient nutrition, nutrition from that. Whereas from your processed thing that you're eating, it makes, it fills you up. You're not that hungry. And then you've also just limited your micronutrient in, intake and possibly your protein in, intake. Um, right. Well, you know, and so, you know, kind bars are, is a, uh, you know, a triumph of marketing, right? Because they're they're nowhere near natural. They they might say you know fruit and nuts, all natural, you know non GMO, but you know they've got typically some sort of oil in them. You know palm kernel. Um, they they so a lot of them have uh, are have dairy, whey, or, or you know skim milk. They've got uh, you know um, lots yeah. and lots of sugars. Processed, processed sugars. Yeah, the know. different bars. The kind bars are actually vegan. But uh, yes, you're right. There's um, in and our protein supplements. I mean, a lot of times people think that our processed items are healthy, and you know, or even cereal. I mean, cereal is pretty processed, um, and it can, you know, it's always better, yeah, to have the less processed version of whatever it is you're eating. Right. Yeah, and we and, and you know Josh Lajani and I uh, talk about the idea of naturally attainable quantities. So that yeah, nuts are totally natural. I have a pecan tree in my backyard, so once a year the nuts fall. I have to fight the squirrels for them. I bring them in. It takes about six months till they're edible, and then I need a uh, you know a fifty dollar Amish machine to crack them. Each each one <laughs> takes about a minute to get the meat out. Like if I was going to you know make one of these like nutball surprises in the food processor with the, with the nuts from my tree, that would be like an all day thing. Right. Yeah. And all the calories you'd burn in producing that item. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we don't have to work for our food anymore. That that's definitely part of it. I think there was a, there was a study, um, done on the Amish and there's been different studies where they measure physical activity, um, in humans who are not, industrialized, you know, who they don't have electricity. And, and they had the, some Amish and I think it was Canada wear pedometers and they measured what all the people from the women and the old, old women to the men tilling the fields and all that. And they found that on average, they were, um, the pedometer was 15 to 20,000 steps a day. That was just on average. That was, you know, they weren't running, you know, training for marathons or anything. They were just working and, and scrubbing and picking up things and all the f things that, you know, we have electric 
everything for now. And the, the, the men in the fields were using like 40,000 steps a day doing farm work. And yeah, we've kind of engineered all of that out of our lives. Right. Which, um, which brings me to the last thing I want to ask you about. So, you know, you have this long pedigree in um, physical education, um, exercise science. And one of the things we talked about before we started recording, a couple, a few, actually maybe a month ago or so, is you feel like the plant-based vegan community um, doesn't highlight physical activity as much as we should in terms of being fundamental to health. So there's this idea, you know, that we tell people like it's all the food. Like if you just if you just eat right, then you don't need to exercise. You, you know, the exer- exercising is something you you can add on and you actually have to eat more in order to do. And you, you kind right. of feel- or, or that walking is enough. That's a message I hear very often. And walking is absolutely not enough, not enough at all. And, and if you think about it, you know, what's our, our premise within the nutrition plant-based world? It's that, you know, we're eating all of these fake things. We're, we're not eating like whole natural foods. Well, our activity is the same exact situation. We are not in a natural state of activity for the human body as it was designed to move. And we're, we're in a perpetual state of inactivity with the least amount of effort, you know, um, produced and the least amount of force produced, force meaning the contraction of our muscle fibers. So we're not getting, you know, we're not giving stimulus to our muscles, our bones, our heart, um, or burning enough calories to affect our body fat levels. And so walking, um, you know, the reason we have to do all these exercises. So I teach cycling, I teach Zumba, I, I teach, you know, classic aerobics and different weightlifting body pump classes and all of these things you could argue, okay, we, we weren't meant to do that, but what we were meant to do was, you know, lift heavy things and pull things out of the ground and move things around and scrub things when we wash and walk distances for food or whatever. And, the the stats are that you know of our pretty minimal physical activity guidelines that research recommends just for minimal activity that enough to produce some health benefits 80% of Americans aren't doing that and um so you know that's minimal that's not being optimum peak fitness and our obesity rates are climbing higher and higher now there's obviously lots of reasons for that and food is certainly a huge factor but so is physical activity and um, walking is not enough. And the reason for that is walking does not provide any decent stimulus to your bones. It does not activate your fast twitch muscle fibers, which are, we have two types of muscle fibers and the fast twitch kind are the kind that one decline as we age. They also decline with weight loss disproportionate to what you would expect. And as a result, that, causes you to burn fewer calories all day. And so anyone who's lost weight on a plant-based diet, they absolutely need to counteract the effect of that by lifting weights and doing vigorous physical activity. So jumping and running. Now, it doesn't mean you have to train for a marathon. It's questionable whether we should run marathons because we're not gazelles. So running 26 miles or more as an ultra athlete, even, you know, there's some people who do it fine, but there's some evidence that it, it can have, you know, some effects that perhaps aren't aren't optimal for our bodies. Um, but, you know, we, we need to we need to run, walk and jump. Um, we need to lift heavy things. You know, we don't need to kill ourselves, but walking is not enough. 
So what do you recommend to people who come to you and they're, they're walkers and that's all they're doing? And like, are they, do, I mean, do people come to you? I assume that they're not in, they don't feel like they're in perfect health. They might be a little bit overweight. Like that's another thing, like, right? Like uh, if you, if we eat a whole food plant-based diet and we eat to, you know, like the left of the red line of, you know, Chef AJ's red line, then we can't be overweight. Um, even if, even if we're not doing much physical activity. Um, so do you, you know, what, what, yeah, what I, do you get you, people to do? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, you know, there's a lot of, um, we, I don't think we've tested that research wise. So I don't know if we can say that conclusively because there is some evidence that, um, you know, it's all about energy balance, right? So our energy expenditure um, must match our energy intake. So how much, how many calories we burn each day must match how, how much we take in. Um, and if it's in balance, we're not going to gain weight. We're not going to lose. We're going to stay stable. There's some speculation within, and this is basically the exercise physiology world and, and the, the, the field of inactivity physiology, which is a new area of research. Um, there's some speculation that at lower levels of physical activity, it may be harder to achieve energy balance because you can't under eat enough to match your levels, your increasing levels of inactivity. So, and get all your nutrient needs and feel full. So let's say, um, you know, you're, you're in, and, and, you know, it depends on the size of the person and everything, but let's say you're, you know, burning a small woman might burn, you know, nine, a thousand calories a day. And if she's very inactive, um, you know, maybe she's burning 1,200 calories a day. Well, we know that if you're eating 1,200 calories a day or less, it's actually hard to meet your nutrient needs um, unless you're eating, say, all broccoli or something. But if you're eating, you know, some processed stuff, I mean, you're definitely going to be uh, low in nutrients. Um, now, some people think, oh, I'll take a vitamin supplement and that'll fix that. But we know that there's a lot more in foods than just what's in a supplement. So we're not getting everything we need. Um, but Anyway, so if someone is just walking, I would say that start to incorporate on your walks some jogging. And it doesn't mean, you know, and some people have different joint issues that might prevent them from doing that. And that's okay. You obviously have to pay attention to what you can do. But you still might be able to, say, jog for 15 seconds or 30 seconds and then walk for five minutes and then do another 30-second high-intensity interval jogging. And then... If that feels good and no joints are affected ne negatively, if you have a joint issue, then start to increase those high intensity intervals and make them longer and with less, you know, uh, less time in between before the next one. So that's number one. And that's going to get, you know, some more high intensity stimulus for your heart and lungs, for your muscle fibers, the fast twitch muscle fibers specifically, um, and it's going to do all sorts of things that basically will give your metabolism and different, you know, hormonal systems a boost that you wouldn't get by being low to moderate intensity. So there, you know, we have different energy systems that are activated depending on what you're doing. And then the other thing is absolutely lift weights. And if you're just doing Pilates or yoga, that's not really enough. I mean, you need to lift heavy things. Um, and, and Pilates and yoga, you know, certainly have benefits, but they sometimes, you know, they can it can be misleading because you can put your joints in positions spe specifically in yoga that your joints aren't designed to go into 
which is why it can take years to achieve some of these positions. So even the lotus position, you know, you can twist your knees getting into that position and our knees are a hinge joint. They're not meant to twist. So um, you can, you know, so sometimes people think, oh, something's slow and there's, you're not jumping. So therefore it's safe, but you, you have to watch out for that. Um, but so we need to lift heavy weights and heavy meaning by the time you finish a set of dumbbell curls or whatever your exercise is, it should be hard. If you're lifting, you know, I've, I've been teaching these fitness classes for years and years. And um, I know that there's some women that come to classes and they've been using the same five pound dumbbell for 10 years. And where, you know, it, they've ceased to get, get a benefit. They might be maintaining, but they're certainly not getting stronger. And, you know, lifting heavy weights for our upper body is stimulating our bone cells in our upper body and also, again, helping to maintain muscle mass. And what people don't realize is that sarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle mass that happens with age. So we know what osteopenia and osteoporosis is. And women are very worried about that in general. But nobody's worried about sarcopenia. And that's actually the more debilitating um health condition that, you know, most of our old people suffer from. And that's sarcopenia, the loss of muscle that makes you so weak, you can't get off the floor if you fall. That's what we want to protect against. And and to do that, you know, you need to stay active and you need to lift heavy weights. And the physical activity guidelines, you know, suggest two to three days a week. I mean, you could get by with one day a week, as long as you're giving yourself a hard workout. If you're starting, you don't want it to be hard. You want to build up to it, but you want to get to the point where you are definitely challenging yourself. Gotcha. And just and just um, to be clear, your own body could be the heavy weight, right? If you're doing you know push-ups and pull-ups and body weight, you don't need, um, or do you need ex- external things well, to lift? Push-ups and pull-ups. I mean, most people aren't doing pull-ups. Some guys will be doing pull-ups. Most women are not doing pull-ups. <laughs> They're very hard to do. Yeah, if you can do pull-ups, those are good. But um, you know, added weight is is good because it's challenging you. And if if we're not doing the things that our whole electric modern society has engineered out of our lives, such as lifting heavy things and, you know, pulling weeds or whatever, things that require effort and force, you know, there's um, we, we need to, you know, we need to lift a, a full body weight training program. It, it only needs to take 30 minutes you know, once, twice, three times a week on non-consecutive days, but it is a good idea to do. Body weight, you know, in your initial phases, using only body weight certainly will get you fit. But after that, I mean, you know, you might, you you still, it's still a good idea to challenge. Now that might mean, okay, you incorporate plyometrics where you're adding more jumping into your body weight move or something where you're basically asking your muscles to produce more force than normal. Because once things get easy, you know, they cease to challenge you. And, um, you know, I'm not saying become a bodybuilder because to that extreme, you know, you might be causing some damage on the joints. Um, if you're lifting super heavy, we don't know necessarily about that long-term, but, um, yeah. So I don't know. It's just most people, you know, need to push and most people aren't pushing is basically it. We need to move one. And then when we move, we need to push past our comfort zone. Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, and the other thing is, too, and this is something to distinguish, uh, is that it depends on your goal as to what kind of exercise and and how much you do. 
So if you're just trying to improve your health risks, you know, live a little longer and lower your risk for heart disease, which both things a plant-based diet can do, right? Um, Well, then walking is enough. But if you're trying to lose weight, if you're trying to get fit, if you're trying to be strong, walking is not enough. And, um, you know, so that's the, you know, if, if someone simply isn't trying to, you know, trying to reach an optimal level, then walking is enough. But, you know, we want to be the more, the better shape you're in when something happens and you can't be moving, you're going to be in a better place to lose a little fitness, you know, if you're at a higher place than if you're at a lower place, if you're at the minimum as opposed to the optimal. Right. So if you get laid off, you will want to have saved a lot of money in your bank account. As as long as you never get laid off, then you can live hand to mouth. (laughs) Exactly. Good analogy. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, I got to run. I really appreciate your expertise and your willingness to kind of, uh, you know, t- take off the gloves and look at these these myths of, of um, plant-based and, and nutrition in general and and say what you see in terms of the research. And uh, I think it's been, it's been, you know, it's 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 very edifying. And I can he- I can hear echoes of your long science writing career uh in the you can in the, how come the, well just the clarity of your answers and that you 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 don't want to go out on a limb right like as a uh as, as a magazine writer you know you mentioned to me earlier yeah. that you you have to check everything so I, I could hear your internal checks of like is that is that true is that anecdote is that supported by science so i, I feel like when folks listen to you, they can feel have a great deal of confidence that you're representing the truth as we know it now, which, as you said, might not be that much, but at least you're, you're not overreaching. Yeah. And just, you know, disclaimer, I really don't know anything, actually. So <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's very frustrating. But um, but, you know, and it's, there's been some criticism of like what the health. And um, some of these other movies and, you know, Eating You Alive uh, just had their big screening last week. And I sent some people to it. And one man who's um, a friend who's a little older and diabetic and has, you know, does the conventional diabetic diet, which manages his disease, but doesn't do much else than that. Um, he he was disappointed in the film Eating You Alive because he felt like it it was all case studies and no real examples. And this man has a Ph.D., so. Um, and no real research, and he was expecting more science. And um, and then there was a you know a famous criticism of what the health by a vegan dietitian who said, oh, it was just you know inflammatory and giving false hopes about these diseases being cured and everything. And I actually am a huge fan of these films, and I think that I know in my everyday life that despite all of the research I've read and been exposed to, and I'm actually more inspired by what I've seen. And even though it's anecdotal, I mean, I was taught it was never possible to cure diabetes. I've seen and met people who've cured their diabetes, you know, including my father, who until he stopped doing the diet, he uh, he was completely transformed. And, and he's, again, the least likely person to have believed it could even happen because he was a huge meat eater and he's actually back to being a meat eater. And now his diabetes is back in, out of control again. Um, but um, yeah, I think that these films are awesome and I'm, and you know, that's people need more motivation than facts. And I think that as you probably know, the behavioral research 
you can throw a bunch of facts at people, but they really need motivation to make the change. Right. And yeah. All right. Good, good words to end with. So, uh, Marty Kahiner, <laughs> thank you so much for all you do. Uh, how can people find you if they want to know more, if they want to check out your, your books, your, uh, your, your uh, consulting services? Well, I, I actually don't have a website up yet, but it's coming up soon. I, I actually am going to be coming out with some plant-based books. And um, right now I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook or Twitter. So Twitter is at Dr. Martika. And um, my Facebook page is Martika Heener, Ph.D., and that's M-A-R-T-I-C-A-H-E-A-N-E-R, Ph.D. Great. Ph.D. And then on Twitter, at say, Dr. D-O-C or just D-R? D-R-M-A-R-T-I-C-A. D-R-M-A-R-T-I-C-A. All right. And I'll include links to that in the show notes. So, uh, Martika, thank you so much. And we'll talk again thank soon. Thank you, Howard. Okay. Sounds great. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you learned something. I know I certainly did. Martika is just such a wealth of both huge research knowledge and practical application. So just a, a great combo. So if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And I've got a couple of new reviews to share with you this week. And actually one I can't remember if I've shared in the past, so I'm just going to do it again. So uh, Jay Summermeyer writes, Looking, look forward to it. One of the few podcasts I get genuinely excited about when I get a new episode alert. Howard does a great job of asking good leading questions that stimulate thoughtful responses from guests on a wide range of WFPB, whole food plant-based topics. Click subscribe. Thank you, Jay. And Tap and Track Fan says, great podcast. Plant Yourself Podcast is one of my favorites and one that I financially support. Woohoo! <laughs> Howard has a great mix of interviews with interesting people to help me be a better person. Howard has a great interview style. He's engaging, curious, and thoughtful. I highly recommend subscribing to this podcast. Wow, thank you so much. You had me at financial support. And uh, of course, I appreciate the kind words. WFPB Girl writes, amazing podcast with four exclamation points. This is one of the best podcasts I listen to. It is insightful, thought-provoking, and so, so interesting. I love Howard's questions that he asks his guests. I often say out loud, great question, and that's with two exclamation points. I love his respect for his guests, and I love the different topics he presents. I also love that they are usually more than 30 minutes because I find myself not wanting it to end. Howard, thank you. Thank you for all you do and for these podcasts and keep up the good work. I look forward to every Tuesday when I see a new one. WF. PB girl, you leave me speechless. I'm, yeah, speechless. Thank you so much for that. And last one, uh, P R T Y N E R says, excellent podcast, great information, and inspiring guests. Well, thank you all. Um, that kind of feedback means a lot to me. I also love getting feedback uh, via the comments on the blog, plantyourself.com, and also you can leave audio comments on SpeakPipe which I find really cool. Plus, it was expensive. So I hope more people will use it in the future. Okay, if you want to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to Martika's books and that Amish study we talked about, you can find all that at plantyourself.com slash 276. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 275 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. 
In garden news, the big news is blueberries. More blueberries than we can eat. More blueberries than we can pile into our mouths. So I think we're going to start freezing them. And they're going to come out into desserts all through the year. We still got a lot of greens for our morning green smoothies. And I'm starting to see tiny little pecans and tiny little grapes. So hoping for a good fall harvest as well. In running news, I've decided I've actually... uh, Paid my money to go to Chicago in July for the Ultimate Frisbee National Championships, the Great Grandmasters. I'll be playing on a 50-plus team. So now all the training is dedicated towards getting me to survive that weekend with my body and my pride intact. Okay, let's bring up Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, to accompany my gratitudes. Of course, thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use that song. Check out willridenour.com for more of his beautiful music. Got a new podcast patron today. It'll come at the very end. We'll see how many breaths it takes me to get through all you fine people. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Blakinovsky, David Bysak, the Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Thud, Victoria Domel, Lenovo, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Runs the Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lim- Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plan Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Lavivella L, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Olakoski, a Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Gamarani, Karen, and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa. Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle Ann, Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, and Lori Fanny for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.